Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation in the 14th chapter. Revelation 14. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and the voice of a great thunder. And I heard a voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four and beasts and the elders. No man could learn that song, but the hundred and forty and four thousand, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they that were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God! And give him glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. The worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. And there followed another angel after him, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into a cup of his indignation, and shall be tormented with the fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is patience for the saints. Here are they that keep the commandment of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. From henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and a cloud upon the cloud, one sat like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come to thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. He sat on the cloud and thrust in his sickle on the earth. And the earth was reaped, and another angel came out of the temple, which is also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had thrust in the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
The winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridle, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. This evening, with the Lord's help, we will consider the Lord of the harvest, and especially as it pertains to the gospel that is preached in the earth. And so our focus of our attention this evening will be placed upon verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour is of His judgment is come. Worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. The book of Revelation is one that is often uh, very difficult for people to understand. And the difficulty often comes in our lack of understanding of Holy Scripture. To understand Revelation, you need to understand the other prophets as well. And to understand the other prophets, you need to understand the rest of Scripture that came before. And so you will often see how uh, in Isaiah... Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they will draw from the law of God. And how it is that Revelation will draw from both places. And so understanding that will aid one, especially in their understanding of the book of Revelation. But also seeing other places of Scripture will help as well. It's not our intent to preach the entirety of this chapter, but to lay before you those two verses concerning the gospel of Christ the everlasting gospel, and how it makes him the Lord of the harvest. Now it's interesting, if you recall, to this morning's message from Psalm 65. Psalm 65 being written by David, likely around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. A psalm that was written to commemorate the entirety of the festivals of the Lord. The whole year of the Lord. Starting from uh, the first month with the Passover to the last of the feasts which is in the seventh month. And then the space in between it as well. As people would wait and plant seed and uh, wait until the next year of harvesting would occur. And David wrote that psalm so that we might praise the Lord in our prayer and see the privileges that God has given to us and assemble before Him, giving thanks to Him. It's interesting that this psalm as well, or this chapter as well, bears some of those stamps of the festivals of the Lord. And if you were to take Leviticus 23 with the Feast of the Lord and Revelation 14 and go through, you would see a parallel between the two. How Leviticus 23 begins with the Passover lamb. What do we see at Revelation 14? It begins with the lamb that is in Zion. And it, Revelation 14 ends with what occurs after the Feast of Booze. That would be the harvesting of the grapes. And we see that with the grapes of the Lord's wrath. It's not just those two things, but each point of the festivals in Leviticus 23 and in Revelation 14 parallel one another. The unleavened bread, the being without sin that is seen. The first fruits that come as well. And right here in verse 4 is noted that the uh, virgins, the 144,000, are the first fruits unto God. And that first fruits, they are the symbolically the Old Testament church. 
that believed on the Lord had died and were not without us made perfect as Hebrews 11 notes. And yet they also represent the church as a whole. That here is the elect of God. There's a specific number. Not 144,000. That's not the point of it. It's not a literal number. But it's symbolic of the fact that God has elected a particular number. And there will not be one more or one less in that number. And yet, we see in these two verses an everlasting gospel that is preached. An everlasting gospel that is preached. Proverbs 25, 25 says... As cold water is to a thirsty soul, so is good news that comes from a far country. The gospel that we have has come to us from a far country, has come from heavenly Zion, as we see in these verses. So with the Lord's help, we'll consider three things with respect to that everlasting gospel and the Lord of the harvest, which is Christ. We'll consider the necessity of the gospel, how it is necessary for the gathering of the elect, how it is necessary, secondly, for the witness against the world, and thirdly, how it is necessary for the destruction of Antichrist. Three things concerning the everlasting gospel as it speaks to the Lord of the harvest. It is necessary for the gathering of the elect, it is necessary for a witness against the world, and it is necessary for the destruction of the Antichrist. Drawing just from verses 6 and 7. The everlasting gospel that is preached. Now, something interesting concerning John. John's gospel uh, is not like the other three gospels. You have four gospels and three of them together uh, parallel one another quite a bit. And so we consider them called the synoptic. That is one eye or an eye together. John, in his gospel, seeks to give to us an understanding of the ministry of Christ, so that in seeing it we may believe, and in believing, as he says, we may have eternal life. This is the only place in all of the writings of John, whether it's his gospel, his three epistles, and his revelation of Christ, that the word gospel appears. That's interesting to me. The gospel is, the word gospel is peppered all throughout Matthew. It's in Luke, it's in Mark, it's in Acts, it's all throughout the epistles of Paul and the other epistles of Peter. But when we come to the John, he's not so verbose with the word gospel. This is the only place that it occurs. And here it is that John demonstrates things that he had drawn and given to us in his gospel account about Christ, pointing to him as the Lord of the harvest. And even as his entire gospel is a witness that it is for the elect's sake, so that in reading it we may believe, and in believing have eternal life. He comes now here and speaks and says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. This angel, it's not the duty of angels as the created beings to preach the gospel. Instead, we read from Hebrews, quoting from the Psalms, that the duty of the angels is to be ministering spirits of the Lord, to worship before Him, and to care for the Lord's people. 
not to preach the gospel. And so it is when Cornelius is told about the gospel, the angel does not tell Cornelius the gospel. Instead, in the vision, Cornelius is told to wait for one, Simon Peter, who will come and give him the gospel. It is the duty of gospel ministers to bring the gospel. And as you know, the word angel also means messenger. And I'd have you understand it that way. That here symbolically is the Lord thrusting into the world His gospel ministers. The call to be a gospel minister is not an earthly call. It's not the temporal calls that we have today. It's not like being a farmer or a school teacher or a garbage collector or a magistrate. Even those, those jobs are necessary. They're necessary for society to go around. No, the call of a gospel minister, a messenger of the gospel, comes from above. It comes from the Lord. It is the only office that comes from above. It is the only job, as, you, as it were, that comes from above. Pastor McCurley often speaks of how the job of the minister is the most important job in the earth. As important as it is for you mothers to catechize your children, even as they suck upon your breast to preach to them the gospel, to evangelize them, that the calling of a minister is of greater importance. Who is the first minister of the gospel other than Christ? When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, when they hear the false gospel of the serpent and eat of the fruit and die, dying, who is the first one to bring them the gospel? Is it not the Son who walks in the cool of the day and comes to Adam and Eve and to the serpent and he deals out the consequences of their sins, but he still leaves behind a blessing? And what does he say? He says to Eve, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He's speaking of himself. When he is incarnate, when he takes upon himself a true body and a reasonable soul, he will crush the head of the serpent with the gospel, which is him dying on the cross for his people, acting as a sacrifice, an atonement for their sins, bearing in his person a human and divine nature so that he may perfectly represent both parties, the party that scandalized God and the scandalized party, which is God. And that's why it's necessary, beloved, as we preach the gospel, and people will ask, well, why, why Jesus? Why the Son of God? Why did God have to become incarnate? Couldn't a person be perfect and die for your sins? Couldn't Adam have died for Eve? The answer is no. Adam could not have, because he could not represent both parties. He could not act as that person for him. But Christ can. Christ can because Christ in his person has the two natures, the human and the divine, and he is able in his person to demonstrate and stand for both parties. And that's why it is necessary that the Son was made incarnate. That's why it is necessary that he took upon him a true body and reasonable soul. And the gospel goes forth and is necessary for the gathering of the elect. So since Genesis 3 forward, we have the eternal gospel, that is, Christ slain from before the foundations of the world, the eternal covenant of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, the covenant of redemption, which is why it's called the everlasting gospel. He had decreed it before the foundation of the world, all things. And now it comes into time and space, and God thrusts 
men into the ministry to preach the gospel. To bring it to the people. And we preach the gospel indiscriminately. We don't know who the elect are. We don't know who is not elect and reprobate. And so we preach the gospel to all people. And so even this evening, as we have people sitting before me, I don't assume that everybody knows the Lord. I assume the opposite. That there are some that do not know Christ. That there are some that hear the preaching of the word Sabbath after Sabbath and walk away unchanged and to their hurt. And on the last day of their drawing of breath, if they do not repent, to their damnation. And that is a very scary thing, but is it not, beloved? And yet the gospel is necessary for the gathering of the elect. We saw that with John 4, how Christ calls himself the Lord of the harvest. He says that elsewhere in Luke. Pray ye that the Lord of the harvest would send forth ministers into his harvest. He sends out the 70, he sends out the 12 disciples and calls himself the Lord of the harvest. This Lord of the harvest is also Lord Sabaoth, as we see in Revelation 14, is it not? And you see the parallel there. He is harvesting because he has a scythe or a sickle. That was also what was used for the gathering of the wheat or the barley, for the pruning of the grapes from the trees. You would have a pruning hook or shears. It was the same thing that was used to cut the branches off on the Feast of Tabernacles, to be able to get the sticks together to make a tent. It's the same thing. And he is Lord of the harvest, and he is holding that scythe, our sickle, as the Lord of the harvest and the Lord of hosts to reap. And there are two reapings that are done. There is the positive reaping of the elect into the barn. And he spoke of that in parables to the people. But there's also a negative harvest as we will see later on. And so he is Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of the harvest. And the gospel is necessary to go out for the elect's sake. And Christ himself bears witness to this. We look in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew, whose name is Levi, speaks on this wise concerning Jesus in his own words. Verse 23 of chapter 4, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Again, chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And again, Matthew eleven fifteen. Matthew eleven five. 5. Um, Jesus has the disciples of John coming to him. And see what it says at the beginning. It came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples. He departed thence to teach and to preach in the cities. Now when John had heard in the prison that works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. 
The dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. In Luke's account of this coming of the disciples of John to Jesus, they come and ask the question, and Jesus actually goes through and heals people and preaches the gospel and raises the dead and turns to them and says, what you just saw. That's what Isaiah prophesied. And it is for the gathering in of the elect. And that's why Jesus says, Blessed is he that hears of me and is not offended. John was a very fiery preacher. He had an idea of what the kingdom of God should look like. And him being in prison was something that he did not expect concerning the decreasing of himself with the exaltation of Christ. And it's not as if John was an unbeliever. He was not an unbeliever. But his faith was shaken. And the Lord comes and doesn't stamp out his faith. And said so he comes along and he takes the smoking flax and blows into it so it would rekindle again. He takes the brood reed, bruised reed and binds it up. And says that those that are not offended in him will be blessed. And so it is that the gospel is preached. It was first preached by the Son in the garden. It is preached by His ministers all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. The next time that we see a gospel minister, that we actually see a gospel minister in Scripture, is Noah. We see it again with Abraham. We're told that that, um, Enoch was a preacher of righteousness himself. We don't see that until Jude. All these men, preachers of the gospel. All these men witnessing the gospel to the people of God for the gathering of the elect. And all these doing so for the purpose of God that it might be fulfilled. And so God sends forth ministers to preach His gospel for that purpose. I ask you, are you praying that the Lord would send forth more ministers? Not not in a de facto, defunct kind of way where we go through the larger catechism and we go through the Lord's Prayer and we look at the list of what we pray for and here's thy kingdom come. What does this mean? And earth is in heaven. And so we just go through part by part. We don't just simply pray for the Lord to thrust ministers into the field because we're told to do that. But do we truly believe that that is what we are to pray? When we pray it, do we truly believe that God will be true to His Word and that He will thrust ministers into the field to harvest? This is what the Lord of the Harvest commands. We see the Lord of the Harvest doing that uh, in this passage. The sending forth of ministers with a divine call to preach the everlasting gospel and note to who it is for. To them that dwell on earth. Secondly, that... The gospel, the eternal gospel concerning the Lord of the harvest is necessary for a witness against the world. The gospel goes out to the earth, to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people. It goes out to all of them as a witness. John, in his gospel, alludes to uh, this. Why is it that such a thing is going to go out into all the world? Why is it that it is not, strictly speaking, staying with the nation of Israel? 
the Lord in John 16 discloses to the disciples concerning his death and concerning the fact that when he goes up to heaven, he will not leave them comfortless, but he will send the comforter. It says in John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. In his epistle, John says, What is in the world but the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life? This is the world. The world is under judgment, and the world is receiving a witness against itself when the gospel is preached. Why is it that we are told on the last day that the Lord will take the earth and burn it with a fervent heat? All the works of the earth burned up that he will take it as a vesture and fold it and put it away and renew it. It is because of the gospel that it was preached to the world and not fully received. And so all those that do not receive it are burned up. All the works of the world are burned up. The same way that the deluge washed away all the works of the wicked previous generation of Noah. They did not know him. They did not seek after the things of Christ who every imagination in their heart was only wickedness continually. The same way that they are buried now under mud and sediment, and some finding, some poking through the dirt, but never to be fully recovered again. So it is on the last day. When the Lord comes, He will do the same to the earth. It will be burnt with fire. Why? Because the gospel goes into it as a witness against it. And as gospel ministers, we do such. We do such for the sake of the world. It would mean nothing if we kept our mouth shut. And some would say that it's better that way. It's better that we preach not the gospel so that there would be less judgment. And for the same reason, there was great debate, even in the free church, concerning the nature of those that had not heard the gospel. The people that are far in the far reaches of the earth that have never heard the gospel before, are they going to hell? Our larger catechism answers that question rightly. They will go to hell. They will go to hell because the light that they have, they were not faithful to. The light of nature that the Lord gave to them, the Ten Commandments upon their heart, the creation bearing witness of His eternal power in Godhead, and what do they do with it? They take the creation and they turn it into an idol. They turn the creation into their creator. And they're not bearing a true witness to it. And so even in the witness of the natural light that they have, of the eternal power and Godhead of the Lord, which is not the same as the witness of the gospel, it's a witness that there is a God, He is to be feared, He is to be worshipped. But they don't know how, because they're not faithful with the light that they do have. But the Lord still sends forth ministers. Why? Because they will be held accountable. It's necessary for them to hear the preaching of the word. And so we see in Matthew 24, 14, the Lord says this, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness 
unto all nations, and then shall the end come. That end has not yet come. That end has not yet come. The gospel is still going out. Now, Paul notes in Acts that the gospel has gone to the entirety of the Roman Empire, as far as he could tell, not yet to Spain, but the whole world, as it were, the known world. And yet the gospel still is to go out into the entire world. So as long as the Lord tarries, as long as we see the Lord not coming to retrieve his bride, as long as there are the elect to be saved, that gospel will be preached in the world. And it will be a witness against the world that the gospel was in their hearing, that the Lord did not leave them without a word. Matthew 26, Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Here we have a woman who takes the alabaster box and breaks it and pours it on the feet of Christ. And the disciples sneering about how it could have been spent for money for the poor. And Christ says, no, this is a memorial for her. Wherever the gospel is preached, to bring to remembrance. So just as the, uh, the sweet smell that was on the feet of Christ from that time to the cross. Christ is hanging on the cross and you could still smell the ointment from the alabaster box. And just as that would still be in the air while he was crucified before the world, So it is that wherever the gospel is preached, the perfume of that gospel goes forth. And so it is. We don't like nasty smells, right? Those of you that have babies know what I'm talking about. You know when your child has a diaper that needs to be changed. And you can be upwind of it or downwind of it. And you can be a father change of the diaper or the mother's change of the diaper and you're to the side. And once you get downwind of it, it's not pleasant anymore, is it? It's not a pleasant smell. The gospel is a pleasant smell. And the gospel is to go out as a witness to the whole world that the stench of sin and death has a cure. And that cure is found in Christ. And how many in the world do not want to take part of it? How many in the world hear that gospel and say, thanks, no thanks. I don't want any part of it. But beloved, that does not mean that we should not be preaching the gospel to the world. No, on the contrary, instead we should be preaching all the more that the world may have less of an account that they can say, I did not know, I did not know. No. As often as the Lord gives us opportunity, we should be preaching the gospel. We should be telling it to our neighbor. so that, And we should do it in a way that is in keeping with the gospel itself, not as a bat upon the head, but as terms of peace. That is what gospel is. It is good news. As we saw in Proverbs 25.25, how it's as a cold glass of water to a thirsty soul. It is as good news from a far country. And so when we preach the gospel, when we give the gospel, We need to be careful that we have truth and mercy meeting and kissing. That we don't just give the bad news of you're a sinner and you're going to hell. 
That's true. And we need to give that. And that needs to be first. But it also needs to come alongside and say, the Lord is the Savior of sinners. And those that put their trust upon Him will not be cast out. And He will embrace them as a son or a daughter, as a brother or a sister. And He will cleanse you of your sin. And He will set your bones aright. And He will make you to walk in the way that you are to go. And all through your journey on earth, as Psalm 23 says, Him being a good shepherd, He will follow you. Mercy and truth will follow you all the days of your life because Christ is with you. And on the last breath that you have in your bed or wherever it may be, you'll be taken home to glory and see Him again. What beauty that is. What beauty that is to offer to the world that gospel. That there is a salvation for sins. That the death and the rot that is smelled in the sin of this world is not all there is. Because the Lord has come in and has barged into the world of sin and has given his gospel. And consider that with the flood. The stench of death after the flood no one his family leaves. Many people don't consider that. There would be dead bodies all over the place. Rotting bodies. For days upon days, months, bodies soaking in the water, under the beating of the sun. If you've been near water, you know what that smells like. Dead fish floating in the water is not a pleasant smell. Why is it that the raven does not return to the ark? Because there's plenty of dead bodies and dead flesh to eat. The raven doesn't care about the leaf of an olive plant. The dove, on the other hand, is looking for a nice place to nest and to nurse its young. Right? And after the flood, God has Noah take those seven clean animals and sacrifice before him. And we're told that it was a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. Now, why is that? Because a stench of death of sin had been removed. And this is what the picture is that the Lord's giving to us that we often miss. The stench of the dead that Noah and his sons smelled. It's the Lord saying, that is what was in my nostrils with the earth. That's what I smelled in your sin. That's what I smelled in this wicked generation that did every imagination of their heart. And yet the sacrifice was a smelling savor. And that was a type of Christ. Right? These were clean animals. And what better smelling sacrifice is there than Christ himself who gave himself for his people. A wonderful sacrifice. A necessary that the eternal gospel is preached for the Lord of the harvest, for the gathering of the elect. The witness against the world to know that their time is coming to an end. Their season of life is coming to a close but also necessary for the destruction of Antichrist. Revelation 14 here. It says in verse 8, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. But look back at the passage, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, this is the everlasting gospel being preached by the angel having the everlasting gospel. What does he say? Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the foundations of waters. We're getting a picture here 
of why the gospel is necessary for the destruction of Antichrist. Why right after that, on the heels of it, is Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Why Babylon at the end drinks of the cup of the wrath of God. Because she was not worshiping God. She did not fear God. She did not give glory to God. That's what we see of the Antichrist. We look to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians. They're speaking to the people, some believing that the last day had already come and passed, and it had not, and still has not. Now I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither in spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day not, shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Note, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. It's true that the Roman Caesars did this very thing. They would call themselves the Pontifex Maximus, which, by the way, is a title of who? The Pope. The Pope takes that title to himself. But the Roman emperors are long gone. But who remains? The Pope, the Antichrist, remains. He remains with the title upon his head. The place that he sits, when he sits ex cathedra, it is the throne of God. If you look at pictures of him in the Vatican City, there's two angels on either side as if it's the Ark of the Covenant. He is sitting, as it were, on the throne of God. He despises everything of God, and he does so with pride in his heart. He does not fear God. Can you imagine the amount, the, the, the amount of gumption someone must have to claim themselves to be the stead of Christ, to be the vicar of Christ? Not a common gospel minister, which every under-shepherd is a type of Christ. Every under-shepherd preaches as if it's Christ. As long as the preaching of the gospel is true and pure, we say it is as if Christ is speaking to us. But to actually say, I am Christ, I am his vicar, I am his stead, is madness. And yet this man does it. And Christ says that you should not lord authority over others. The Gentiles exercise authority, but it shall not be so among you. But the greatest of you shall be the least, and shall be the servant of others. What do we see of the Pope? He has a ring that everybody needs to kiss. He has a royal throne. He is seated, and he is served. And not just that. He ascends and makes his kingdom and dominion over all the earth. And he does so with the name of Christ stamped upon it. Right? There are 85 countries that claim Vatican City is a true nation. And who's the head of Vatican City? It's the Roman See, and the Roman See is the Pope. There are 179 countries that have dealings with the Vatican City as a nation. They don't, not all 179 claim that it's a nation, but have dealings with it. There are some nations that don't have any dealings. And ironically enough, it's the Mohammedan nations that neither see Vatican City as a true country, 
nor have dealings with it. But what's more, if we remember back to the Middle Ages, how many nations were under the heel of the Pope? You know, to this day, there are still tens of nations under the heel of the Pope. Napoleon taking the Bishop of Rome and putting him in exile where he died did not end the Pope's reign over nations. There are still nations where they have to get the say-so from the Pope to change the law. Where the Pope raises laws and decreases laws. And it's interesting, uh, in the, it was in the news recently with all that's happening with the LGBTQ nonsense. That the Pope was giving lesser offenses to that sin of sodomy. To those nations. Telling them they should not put these people to death. Here's the man of sin. Declaring to nations... And telling magistrates, this is the ruling you are to do. You see, this is his wickedness. This is the height of it. That he goes against the law of Christ. And the gospel, beloved, the gospel destroys the Antichrist and his kingdom. What else is there that destroys it? You see, how many times do we see little form, uh, lights of the Reformation cropping up? We have John Huss. We have Wycliffe. We have Luther. These lights of the Reformation coming early. And then we see the fullness of the Reformations. And what was it that fueled it? Was it a sense of social justice? Was it a egalitarianness? No, it was the gospel being preached. It was men like John Huss or John Wycliffe or Luther sitting down, reading the scripture. The the man shall be justified by faith. The gospel of Christ. And so it is that when the gospel was preached, Rome would come in and issue their bans, put men to death. And so it is today. That if they have their way, if they have their ability, that they will put such to death. And we ought to note that, that the gospel goes forth and is issued and it is to the destruction of Antichrist that the Lord of the harvest sends forth the eternal gospel. That should embolden us all the more to preach the gospel, should it not? And that should also tell us that where the gospel is lessening in a nation, you can be sure that the Antichrist kingdom will advance more and more. This is what happened early on. You go into the pagan nations, and Rome would syncretize and take over. And look at our nation. Half of the Supreme Court are papists. These aren't Protestants. These are people that believe the Pope. And we see everything with our nation, how it's confused with law. And it's that kind of thing that is setting the groundwork that if repentance is not had, that if the gospel is not preached, if revival does not happen, to allow a tyrant with a different set of laws and codes that seem structured to come in and take over. Now, America has never had that before. She's had times where colonies would have specific religions in charge. Maryland had the Pope papacy in charge. But she has never seen 
what England saw. She has never seen what Germany saw. She has never seen what Italy saw, where the Pope was the supreme pontiff and head of the state and the church. And beloved, we could see that in America. We could. Pendulum swings from the lunacy that we see today where people don't know what a woman or a man is, where pedophilia is now on the rise and allowance. You imagine it. 20 years ago, people that were saying what they're saying would have been beaten, dragged out of their houses, arrested. But today, if you don't condone what they're doing, you're the one that's beaten. You're one that's dragged out of the house. Your children are taken away from you. But you see, the, the pendulum will shift. You have all this lunacy and the earth will spew our own people out and it will shift to the opposite extreme of tyranny, of unbiblical laws that seem like they're there. They seem like they're biblical. And what do we see concerning Satan? That he is able to appear as an angel of light. And who more like unto that than his um, own priest of Judas, which is the Pope. We need to be careful, beloved. We need to be careful concerning this. And that's why we need to make sure that we preach the gospel all the more. The more the gospel goes out, the more it goes into the world, the more we are sure that the judgment and the death and the end, the destruction of Antichrist will come to pass. John never uses the word Antichrist there in Revelation or in his gospel, but he speaks of it in his epistle in 1 John 2. He says, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know it is the last time. They went out from us, but were not of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out of us that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. You see, Rome wasn't the first church. Rome was the apostasy. Rome was the falling away of the true religion and the establishment of a false religion. One that does not seek to glorify God. Verse 22, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. And you might ask yourself, how is it that the Pope denies Jesus? He claims to be the vicar of Christ. He claims to be in the stead of Christ, and that's how he denies Christ. Because the only God, a mediator between God and man is Jesus Christ. Not Mary as a co-redemptrix, not Mary as a co-redeemer, not the Pope, not his priests, none of that. And in doing so, in implementing this bad theology, this error, this heresy, he denies Jesus Christ. He denies the Father and the Son and their relationship by inserting himself into that relationship, by inserting Mary into that relationship. What else do we see? Chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard of it that should come, and even now already is in the world. How is it that the Pope denies this, that Jesus has come in the flesh? Because Jesus came in the flesh one time. One time was he incarnated. And yet, what do we see with the Mass? Hocus pocus. 
the elements are turned into the body and blood of Christ so that in, with, and under, they're all there. So that they appear, even though you can't do a test on it scientifically, it's there. That Jesus is there in the mass, in the host. And that's heresy, beloved. And so the Pope, in his mass, denies that Jesus came in the flesh. Because he comes in the flesh again, and again, and again, and again, and again. What does that sound like? That Jesus would have to come again and again and again and again for the sacrifice of the Mass. It sounds like Jesus' sacrifice was not sufficient the first time, does it not, beloved? This is what we read in Hebrews. That the blood of bulls and goats could not satisfy, could not bring atonement. And so the author of the book of Hebrews, Paul, notes how year after year the high priest had to bring the atonement because it was not sufficient. And yet he notes, yet Christ once for all offered himself a sacrifice. But the Pope does the opposite. He teaches that Christ must be sacrificed over and over and over again, be incarnated again and again and again, that he did not come in the flesh. And so it is that when we preach the gospel, the everlasting gospel that Jesus, the Son of God, took unto himself a true body and a reasonable soul, came into the world, born of the Virgin Mary, under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, died on the cross for his people, under Pontius Pilate, by instigation of his own people, the Jews, the church, that he lay in the grave for three days and did not see corruption, was raised by the Father, and is now seated on the right hand of God, to come and collect his bride on the last day. That when we give this gospel, that with the blood of Jesus, sinners are saved. And only the blood of Jesus. Not the intercession of priests. Not the paying of money and indulgences. But the prayer of faith to say, Jesus, I believe on you. That you are the Christ. That you are the eternal gospel. That in you there is salvation and in no other that you are the way, the truth, and the life. When we preach this gospel, we lend to the destruction of Antichrist because it opposes his kingdom. It opposes what he stands for, and it unseats the Pope from his royal throne and places Christ where he belongs, on his throne. So, beloved, this evening, as we look at the Lord of the harvest, who will take his own into his barn, and will harvest on the last day the wicked, and especially the Pope, and his minions, will harvest them as Lord of the harvest in his wrath. Let us remember this, that it is the everlasting gospel that is necessary for these things. It is necessary for the gathering of the elect. It is necessary for the witness against the world, and it is necessary for the destruction of Antichrist. Let's stand and look to the Lord in prayer.